We talk a lot on this podcast about chess improvement, but when it comes to improving your hiring processes, Indeed is the platform you need. Indeed has over 350 million global monthly visitors, and it has a matching engine that helps you find quality work candidates fast. You can use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with your candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Years ago, when I was running a chess teaching business, I found it hard to find good help, and I had to go through a lot of back and forth to even screen potential candidates. Indeed allows you to do those things efficiently in one place. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed for hiring, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of Perpetual Chess will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility if you go to Indeed.com slash chess. Just go to Indeed.com slash chess right now, and you'll be supporting our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast, Indeed.com slash chess. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, guys. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hey, everyone. Before we get to this week's interview, I've got to give you the proverbial quick note. I wanted to let you guys know about a fun chess-related Kickstarter project that's ending pretty soon on November 21st. It's for a chess robot called Square Off. It features an automated chess board where you make your move on the board, and then the board itself moves the pieces in reply. It's got a cool design, and you can use it to play against the computer itself or to play online games. I was made aware of this Kickstarter by Guven Manet, who's a friend and supporter of Perpetual Chess and is also the president of the multicultural chess club called the Satrank Club 2000 in Cologne, Germany. After Guven sent me a link describing the project, I checked it out and decided to back it myself. And I look forward to getting my own square off computer in June of 2020. If you'd like to check out the Kickstarter for yourself, please look at the link in the show description. Okay, on to the show. Hello, everyone. I'm Ben Johnson, and this is the Perpetual Chess Podcast. On Perpetual Chess, I have weekly conversations with chess players, personalities, authors, and adult improvers about their lives, their careers, and about chess improvement. Perpetual Chess is brought to you through the generosity of its Patreon and PayPal supporters. For more information, go to perpetualchesspod.com. Guys, you are totally going to believe this, but there's a minor audio issue for the beginning segment of this show due to a technical screw-up by yours truly. 
What happened was I was accidentally recording the external mic while I had the actual proper mic plugged in. So for the beginning of the show, I might sound a little tinny and distant, but then I figured it out. In fact, the discerning listener, if you listen around the 16 minute mark, you'll hear me start to rustle with things as I figure this out. And then about a minute later, we get it straightened out and cut in and go from there. So I apologize for the inconvenience. JJ sounds loud and clear throughout and my sound gets better once we figured that out. So I didn't want to re-record the first 15 minutes because it kind of ruins the spontaneity of the conversation. But JJ's got some great insights on how he improved so quickly. So I think you'll enjoy the interview, but just wanted to apologize for that. Uh, okay, on to the show. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to another Adult Improver edition of Perpetual Chess. Those of you listening probably know this, but just in case you don't, uh, on these Adult Improver interviews, we have a specific focus on how adults can get better at chess, and we interview some standout players who have made great gains. And our guest this week has definitely done that. He resumed playing chess about a year and a half ago, and his rating has gone from 1,800 to over 2,100 at its peak. Um, He is also a philosophy of language grad student at Stanford. He grew up in North Carolina, but now lives in Chicago. And as luck would have it, he also started teaching some chess this year. So without further ado, JJ Lang, thank you for joining us. Longtime listener, first time caller, really happy to be here. Thank you. Well, I I mean, I can't bury the lead, JJ. 300 points in uh, in in less than a year. That's uh I mean, that's pretty much my only question for you. <laughs> how, how on earth? I mean, okay, of course at a at a lower level it um it can it's not as challenging if you had gone all due respect to any um newer or less experienced players listening, but going from 900 to 1200 is one thing, but to go from 1800 to 2100 when you're not a kid is is nothing to sneeze at. So let's hear all your secrets. Yeah, so I can tell you all of my secrets. Um, They're all super easy things that anyone can do. Uh, The first thing is I took about a decade off playing tournament chess. But during that decade off, I was playing Blitz on the time. I I was playing online. Um, I wasn't really studying that much, but also I didn't really know how to study chess ever besides like studying tactics. And so I was still doing tactics and on chess.com, I guess, and playing a lot of blitz and a lot, a lot of bullet. So I wasn't really doing anything to work on improvement, but it was like my favorite way to like de-stress or like kill time during grad school was to play. So like I stopped playing and we can talk about that, but I quit chess towards the end of high school and like decidedly quit playing when I was like 17 or 18 and my rating was like 1780, I think 1790. And I think it was always a sore point that I could never get to 1800. And that was kind of my goal, just get to 1800. And then after I quit, I was still just playing for fun. But the other thing is chess kind of became fun. The pressure was off. And the other thing is I got really resourceful playing a lot of blitz and bullet and not studying and always being in worse positions. So I (laughs) was never really discouraged by bad positions and barely knew how to evaluate that I was in bad positions. Um, So I had about a decade of very selective training of pulling myself out of holes and studying tactics that went back into getting back into chess. So that's the first thing is take about a 10 year break to clear your head 
Again, these are super easy things. Okay, um, I, I, I can almost check that one. Go on. <laughs> yeah, you're mid. But now this 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 is where this is where I think I'm about to get you though. Um, the next is free from pretty much all other responsibilities. Move oh, to New York for yeah. a semester. I would love to. <laughs> where do I sign up? <laughs> I mean, per- personally, so. I've never had one of those prestigious chess uh, Samford fellowships, and I'm never going to get one. But I had the next best thing, which was a Stanford fellowship, um, which is for my PhD program, it's funded to teach and research. And I got all of my teaching done with early. And so for my fourth year, they had this exchange program where they would send grad students out to New York to teach their own class at City College in Harlem. And I really care about teaching philosophy and chess, but I'm really passionate about teaching. And schools like Stanford have a lot of faculty, not a lot of students. That's kind of the selling point. So there's not a lot of opportunities for grad students to teach. They're really trying to get that tuition money by advertising you're actually taking classes with professors. So to get their grad students teaching experience, they come up with these sorts of programs where they send us elsewhere to teach. And as I was getting ready to move out to New York for a semester where I had my Stanford funding and then a housing stipend on top of it, I was thinking, you know, I have some friends in New York. I used to be really plugged into the music scene and like going to shows and stuff. But beyond that, I'm not really sure what my life is going to look like. But I know New York is chess central. What if I really got back into chess? And we can talk more about other things that like led to me wanting to get back into chess. But I just knew if I was going to be in New York and I was really just like teaching one class and ostensibly doing my own research. But, you know, it's not like anyone's my advisor's there to check up on me. Um, So I was like, I have a lot of time. And then I thought, and if I have a lot of time and a little bit of money, I should also look into getting a coach, something I never had for chess, somebody who could really help me understand how to improve. So I found somebody on um on chess.com via skype she's a women's grandmaster adriana nikolova um can link to her profile on there i'd recommend her a lot i feel like she charges a really reasonable rate for really high quality instruction and i just got along with her very well um just needed to find somebody who could help me understand what i didn't understand teach me openings which i never really knew that well and kind of show me what it means to study chess and so I was able to take lessons with her, which like pretty quickly became just a lot of opening studying, a lot of game analysis, because since I was in New York, I was playing two, sometimes three tournaments a week at the Marshall Chess Club. Um, yeah. So part of it is I had the time to study chess and the money to put a little bit into taking lessons and a lot into playing tournaments without having to travel. But also because it's the Marshall, this means that you're constantly given opportunities to play 2,200 plus players. You can even lose a game or two and still be playing 1,800 plus players in ways that 10 years ago in North Carolina, when I was growing up, North Carolina has gotten a lot better now, thanks to like Peter Giannatos and other folks, but Charlotte Chess Center. But growing course, up, you know, yeah. it was really easy to like go to a tournament where there is only one or two people above 2000 in the whole tournament. So if you lose or even draw a game, you're not playing anyone above 1800 the rest of the tournament. Um, so to go from that, where if you're like a 16, 1700 player, the chances to get big jumps are few and far between to something like the Marshall, where you can consistently go two and a half out of four and gain 25 points in a day. 
made a rating jump, I think, a lot easier. So I was playing like 10 tournaments a month and not like really winning them, but just like consistently doing two and a half or three out of four with like one win against like a 2000 or a 2200. So, so that, so those are my uh, main recommendations for how to improve. And I mean, I I mean, I'm happy to talk about the actual work I've done, but the, unfortunate truth is between having like that 10 year head start on my rating and being in this really fortunate position where I had time and money to dedicate to chess in New York is just really shows that it's not just that adult minds are bad at improving or learning, but just that the reality of being an adult is that you don't have the mental and financial resources to dedicate to chess that you do when you're a kid or when some people do when they're kids. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. That's, that's one of the many issues. And of course, um, getting to play, as you mentioned in, in these uh, places that are not the chess hotbed that New York city is, is, is a challenge as well, but first let's get the proper context. So it sounds like you feel like maybe, well, first of all, I should have—I uh, should know this. I want to say you're 28, but how, how old are, are you exactly, JJ? Nailed it, 28. Oh, phew. Okay. Well, um, see, tried to play it cool, but of course I knew. <laughs> but um, more importantly, so you were 28, and do you, you mentioned that you were playing blitz in intervening years, even in between tournaments. So uh, when you came back and you were rated a bit under 1800, do you think that you were underrated at that point? Uh, yes and no. Um, I think that, I think that I had a high ceiling, like maybe close to 2000 at the time, but that I had a lot of holes in my game. Mm -hmm. Um, and at the time, or at least like when I was rated almost 1800, when I stopped playing around 17 or 18, I would have been very cocky and say I was incredibly underrated. Right, and right. As everyone As does, everyone basically. would. But I mean, my reason yeah. for saying that would be I could point to games against 2000s that I beat, where I beat 2000s. Right. And I would think if I can beat a 2000, clearly I am a 2000. <laughs> um, and, also sounds familiar. And yeah, and I mean, and you know, I hope some people listening hear this and go, oh no, that's what I think. What's wrong with me? Right. Um, yeah. Well, what's wrong with you is, <laughs> no, but um, I mean, I think just, you know, where you are at your peak, you can beat people that are rated much higher than you if they play to your strengths or if everything goes your way or you get a good break. But what makes a 2000 to 2000 is that they're playing at that level of consistency and consistently and in almost all aspects of their game. So I could beat a 2000 in a very tactical open game and get wiped off the board in a positional game or in an end game. And so I really wasn't 2000 in certain areas. I was probably well below 1800. Um, so no, I don't think, so I think I definitely had a high ceiling, but no, I think like 1800 strength was pretty accurate. But as okay. I started like plugging, a, but I had, I had so many holes in my game from like a non-existent opening repertoire to hadn't studied end games in a decade to like, didn't really understand positional chess. And once I started to like, learn how to think about what positional chess really means, I feel like a lot of things started to click, but that was after okay. I started playing. Yeah. Wow. Well, I mean, there's so many aspects of the game to sort of break down, but number one, I mean, this is a, I'm sure a point that we'll, we'll be highlighting a few times. I mean, obviously you had some unique life circumstances that a lot of people won't be able to duplicate, but certainly I, I don't think it should be lost that 
okay, not everyone's going to be able to play. What was it you said? 10, 10 tournaments a month or something? Something ridiculous like that. Yeah. That's insane. Yeah. Obviously, basically no one can do that if you're, especially if you're, I mean, not in New York or St. Louis or, you know, Moscow or something, <laughs> um, but, but play as much as you can clearly. Yeah. Um, obviously the, the work that, that your coach did and that, I mean, that your coach helped you with um, is important. And certainly we're going to get, get down to a, a granular, granular level on that, but um, play as much as you can is one clear lesson, um, Totally. But, but let's get into the details. So mm-hmm. uh, your opening is maybe the worst aspect of your game when you get back to it. So how did, how did you fix it? Yeah. So one thing to say about play as much as you can is like, if you look just before doing that, like if you look on the rating graph, I think I had very few tournaments where I gained more than like 20 or 25 points. Um, so if you're playing like a tournament every three months, then, and you gain 20 points each time, that's awesome. But at the end of the year, that's 80 points, which also, by the way, is awesome. (laughs) That's like a really good year. But if you play four tournaments a year and you gain 20 points in two of them and lose 10 points in two of them, that's 20 points. Yeah. I think Um, it might matter psychologically too. Like just if you're playing all the time, it's like, okay, you have a bad tournament, but you're playing again in three days or whatever it is. Exactly. And for those who uh, like, don't know, like the way the Marshall set up is like, you'll have a four round tournament on Thursday night that starts at 7 PM and goes till like 11. And each round is 25 five, which is the fastest time control that's still slow rated. Um, or it's dual rated, but it affects your slow rating. And then you'll have one day tournaments on Saturday and Sunday. So if you have a bad Saturday, there's always Sunday. Then you'll sometimes have weekend tournaments and then like FIDE rated games. So like there's different time controls pretty much every night of the week. So it's not like you just have to play rapid or something. But if you want to get a lot of games in, you can. And so the result was like I lost a few points once or twice. But like mostly was gaining like five points at a bad tournament and like 20 points on a good one. And if you're playing like eight or 10 tournaments a month, that adds up really, really quickly. Right. Um, but the- even if you're only playing a couple times a month, that adds up a lot more quickly than if you're playing only a couple times a year. Yeah, yeah, it helps. I mean, you still have to you have to achieve the results is the main thing. But I do think I mean, if you're in like if you're absorbing yourself in chess, I think. You're just speeding up the feedback loop, basically. So. Totally. And I think like having somebody to go over your games with, whether that's a coach or a friend who's stronger than you or like an online community you cultivate, like through like maybe like a blog or something or like Facebook groups, having someone to go over games is really useful because especially if you're playing a lot, because otherwise you're just like it's really easy to make the same mistake over and over again. But like if I would play a tournament Thursday my coach would tell me on Friday that I made this mistake and then Saturday I would be aware of it and try not to make it. Can you and, think of uh, specific examples of that? Yeah, yeah. I think the most mind-blowing thing for me and just like this kind of huge hole in how I think when I play that was just never apparent to me came up when I sh- sent my coach a couple losses against higher-rated players and each time there was a moment where should there where my opponent made a pretty aggressive looking move and then i played a pretty defensive looking move in response and adriana would say she would ask okay what is it that you were afraid of and i would give some sort of general answer 
like, oh, well, you know, the rook was on a half open file and the pawns were close to my knight, something like that. And she would say, no, like, what is the line that you were afraid of that made you push that pawn or act defensive or something? And I would just say, I don't know. Um, and she would say, well, if you didn't calculate the variation that proved that you were in danger, why did you defend against the danger? Or something like that. And I was just like, oh, that's a way to play better. Um, instead of just instinctively responding to the superficial this looks aggressive so i should play defensive i need to calculate and then what i found out was that lots of 1900s 2000s and even lots of like 2200s especially kids they weren't calculating either and like or maybe they just weren't calculating well but a lot of them were playing moves that looked aggressive because they're used to playing moves that look aggressive and scaring lower rated players um and, or maybe they did calculate and just didn't do it well. But suddenly I start realizing half the time I can't even find what variation it is that actually works. And sometimes I miss it and lose, and that's why they're better than me. But other times it just turns out that they were doing what I was doing, which was playing kind of instinctively and saying, this looks aggressive. And when I stopped to try and calculate and look for the variation, sometimes I'd realize there just wasn't one there. And then I didn't have to respond defensively and could counterattack. And they would try to attack and then realize it's not there. I think what you say is pretty interesting in terms of uh, it's almost like it's like an emotional response rather than yeah. it's like the the rational versus the emo versus the emotional mind. Um, mm -hmm. And I think it's something a lot of people deal with in, in chess as in as in life. But one thing that I'm wondering about since you were playing in New York and you mentioned that it was often fast time controls. Like, mm -hmm. So how did what advice did your coach give in terms of uh, knowing when to calculate? Because in those 25 minute with five second increment games you you can't just you can't just calculate everything you do need to play instinctively sometimes yeah yeah that's a great question um i think her advice was play slower games um <laughs> uh i think her advice yeah. was just don't play 25 5 but um i wanted to play as much as i could i was a kid in the candy store of new york chess uh after 10 years of depriving myself of chess. Um, but I think I, this is a question that I've thought about some because, and this is something I thought about some with some of the more advanced students in like the 1200 to 1600 range who I teach, where some of them are chronically getting into time trouble and others are chronically moving too fast. Um, and one sort of rule of thumb that I've started suggesting is that... Um, it's time to calculate when the moves you're considering strike you as very counterintuitive. So that's, Oh, sorry. Oh, I was just going to say that sounds like a good rule of thumb. Yeah. And there's going to be exceptions, but you know, like I think there was not to get like too technical, but I think like at one point, one of my students who's around 15, 1600, he was playing a Nimzo Indian as black. And so he he's advanced enough to know that a characteristic pawn break in that opening is the C pawn to C5. And he's advanced enough to know that moves like pushing the F pawn to F5 around move 10 are not very characteristic in that opening. Um, and he very quickly played the move F5. And he had some ideas for why it could work. And my suggestion to him was that this would have been a great moment to sit and calculate because he knows he's playing a very committal move that is not in the spirit of the position. 
So he needs to figure out why that move is typically not good in that position, and then figure out concrete variations about whether those things would apply in this exact game. And if the answer is no, those things don't apply, then he's found a brilliant exception and played the brilliant move, f5. But if he finds concrete ways that white busts open the center with a pawn to f3, then a pawn to e4, then he's found concrete reasons why f5 is bad, and then can very quickly play c5 because it's only a matter of time before black plays c5. So knowing a lot of chess and a lot of chess theory helps, but a lot of us do have these intuitions, I think, of when if they're making an aggressive move and instead of trying to defend, we just launch our own attack, we should probably stop and calculate. Um, But if they're threatening our knight and we have one square to move the knight to and we want to move it to that square, we can play that move quickly. If we're thinking of sacrificing the knight instead, we should calculate. And like that's something that I think everyone knows, right? But I think the general principle is that when you're looking at the obvious move, move the knight, you don't need to calculate that much. When you're looking at the surprising move, you do need to calculate. But that's not just true of a peace sacrifice. I think that's true of when you're playing a characteristic versus uncharacteristic pawn break, when you're trading even though you're losing when you're giving yourself an isolated pawn, when you're, I don't know, I can go on and on, but I think those are all cases where like, if you know there's a weakness associated with the move you're doing, or like some some sort of rule why it's supposed to be bad, then it's probably worth calculating to figure out if that badness applies. Yeah, that, that makes sense. I mean, so one thing I'm wondering is if you have a sense, so you mentioned your, your coach, um, your coach, didn't love the idea of you even playing these faster time control games. Mm-hmm. Do you have a sense of if the game 25 tournaments in particular were, I mean, you probably gain rating points like in all time controls, but do you mm-hmm. have a sense of if you're stronger for, if you've been stronger for your rating at slower time controls or faster time controls? Um, I think that when I first started, faster time controls was a crutch and a way to get points quick. And definitely... Because I did have a lot of blitz and bullet experience under my belt, I definitely performed above my rating in time scrambles. So that was nice. Like I could go into a drawish end game with, or even sometimes because it's a game 25, a drawish game on move 20 against a 2000, 2200 player. And if we're both under a minute, pull out the win. Um, but now I think I play pretty awfully and start to doubt myself in fast time controls. And a lot of my best wins come in more like fide time controls. Okay. But you still play them both even in Chicago? Well, in Chicago, in Chicago, we don't have the... I would like for us to have more like game 30, get four games in and then evening off work, mm-hmm. not have to dedicate a day to it things. And I think um, Nathan Kelly from the National Blitz League and Chicago Chess Blitzers has been talking about doing some of those probably on the south side. And he's great for Chicago Chess. And I'm sure at some point that'll start. Uh, Shouts out to Nathan Kelly. But mostly they have like game 60s, which I think that's the one time control I always do the worst at. (laughs) I don't know what it is where I think it's just it's. It's long enough to where if you don't calculate enough, you get burned, even by lower-rated players. But it's not long enough to carry that time into complicated endgames. Yeah. Um, 
So I usually either get out tactic early, out tacticed early, <laughs> or um, out end gamed late and haven't. And I feel like I just don't care enough. Of, there aren't like such big events at the time control that I really want to learn how to be a game 60 player. Um, in the same way that like learning how to be a game 25 player when I could play four game 25 games a week every week made some sense in ways that learning how to be a game 60 player just like seems like I could just spend that day studying chess instead and then play a game 90. Yeah, I never learned to be a game 25 player when I lived in New York and I still played some game 25s and that's that's a big chess regret of mine is that I didn't treat them differently and, and so... Mm-hmm. I was just playing with five minutes for move 20 every time. I mean, Um, that's something you can do, right? Like sometimes I think another thing that I've learned a lot is like I've started to try to set very specific goals for the tournaments I play. And those goals set them, but I don't follow them. But But those those I mean, those goals for me aren't like about results, though. Like those goals are too. I just don't follow them. But anyway, (laughs) sorry, complete your thought. (laughs) Well, I think for me, it's like, what am I trying to accomplish in these games? And sometimes it's, um, you know, I've been learning, I've actually been learning the Rui Lopez and not just like the first six or seven moves of the close Rui Lopez. So when I get a Rui Lopez, I want to really immerse myself in the position, think deeply, and then get to go home and find out how well my intuitions track like Grandmaster Games or the engine or whatever. Um and knowing full well that like I'm going to be in time trouble starting move 20 and have five minutes for the game and then it's blitz. But hey, I've played a lot of blitz. Um, right. And like at least when I go in being aware of that instead of beating myself up for getting immersed in a complicated game and thinking too long, I still get really good data on how I think in Aria Lopez. And then I can go back and start to build a more better a better repertoire out of that and then when i play longer games i can actually play faster and because it was just a 25 5 it's not like i spent four hours getting tortured because i played the opening wrong and so like when i go when i'm able to go into games thinking like that or like if i know i'm going to be one of the higher rated people at the tournament i think hey you know i want to work on my consistency my goal is to not lose to anyone rated below 2000 if i have to take a draw so be it but my goal is to not lose to anyone under 2000 then i don't get disappointed when i'm paired against lower rated players because it's a chance to improve my streak and show that i'm becoming much more consistent and so those sorts of things i think both for like psychological and for like just related things can be good otherwise i'm just either beating myself up that i blew my one chance against a high rated person or i'm beating myself up that i took too long in the opening and so setting these sorts of goals are just a good way to not beat myself up because you know if i haven't played a game 25 in a year i'm not going to be good at game 25 so my goal shouldn't be winning all my games my goal should be something that i can get out of playing a game 25 yeah i mean a couple things one i um just uh, I mean, this this show is really about you more than me, but just for clarity's sake, my, my specific problem would be like, I, I would try to tell myself, like, I, I have only a time goal, you know, mm. for this, like, my only goal for this tournament is to, uh, you know, to um, have whatever, you know, half an hour left for the, the last, you know, 15 moves or something like that, mm-hmm. if it's a longer time control, or change it if it's a faster time control, you know, mm-hmm. um, that's my only goal. And then I get to the board and I just can't, like, yeah. I just can't move, you know? Um, totally. And, 
And I think part of that is that like, if you're not playing a lot, it's harder. But mm -hmm. I mean, and it's funny because generally I don't have like, I'm pretty good at setting and achieving goals, but something about the psychology of chess makes it, um, makes it uniquely challenging. Definitely. It's also, it's also hard because like, I don't know about you, but like, I feel like the, the kinds of, the kinds of openings I prefer are such that like, I play some lines where like, I don't know, like I play the Bishop G5 line of the Knight Orf, So like. In those lines, we get to move 20 just on the increment, right? <laughs> um, because right. they're very long theoretical lines. And then I also play some lines where I'm out of book, like at the Italian game or something, where like I know the vague ideas, but I'm out of book on move six. Um, so I've played games. I'll play games where getting to move 40 with half my time is really easy. And games where getting to move 15 with half my time is really hard. So like the idea of setting a time goal before I even know what kind of game it's going to be just seems like setting myself up for disappointment. Yeah, that's a valid point. But on the other hand, I mean, if it's your by far or your biggest weakness, you know, it's like, uh, you know, you, you, you have to address your I think you should address your weakest points first. But yeah, anyway, well, I mean, uh, <laughs> I don't know, we could we could talk hours about just time management. Um, so my so other my other thing on time management is uh, Chicago is a really good place for blitz. Mm -hmm. um, so Nathan Kelly has been organizing the Chicago chess blitzers who've been going around doing some matches. Yeah. I don't think I'm on the team yet, but I have a match against one of their guys coming up. Well, it will have happened by the time this comes out. And um, oh, I'm wow. going to play big, some big matches. Action. Yeah, I know. 21 game cage match, 11 five O's, 10 three O's. Um, so who do you play? Who do you play? Stephen Jennings, aka the closer. Okay, I, yeah, I saw something about on your Facebook about it, but I'm I can't give you a scouting report. I'm not familiar with uh Yeah, with he doesn't Steven stand Jennings. a chance. Okay, um, and by that I mean I'm terrified. Uh, <laughs> right. Uh, but uh, but but so you have. It's it's this awesome scene, right? Where it's like you have seven days a week, you have guys playing chess in a McDonald's deep on the south side off the red line. And they get there after the lunch rush around two o'clock and they stay till close at nine. And then sometimes they go to a couple after hour spots. So you have guys playing chess like 2 p.m. until indefinitely any day of the week. And there's like lots of like B and C players and then some A players and then some guys like Tom Murphy, who's been an expert, but like probably at his peak strength was a master and then other masters and sometimes like IMs and folks will come down. But so the level of play can get really high and they mostly play 5-0 blitz or 3-0 blitz. So it's... uh. I never really cared too much about Blitz before living here. I mostly played it online just because it didn't feel like I was investing a lot of time into playing chess. And so I could still tell myself that I, quote, didn't care about chess, even though I was playing a bunch. But here, like, the Blitz culture is infectious. And just like, you know, you have guys like Nate posting videos. You have guys who actually care about their USCF Blitz ratings. You have Blitz tournaments. And you have guys who are just really fun to play, who play great chess in a complete game very fast. And so I think I've been working on time management by getting better at Blitz. Yeah. Uh. Yeah, that... Yeah, if if and when if I were to make like uh, make a concerted comeback, I would definitely work on blitz and up to twenty five minutes. Just because as you get older, you have to be practical. So right, that's whether it's my strength or not. You know, like it's uh, better than spending four days like you know playing 
11 hours of chess or whatever. But also Blitz is fun and it sounds like a great community in Chicago. I used to, Tom Murphy lived in Philly when I was growing up. So I played him a bunch growing up and he was, he was fierce. Yeah. Um, He's still just a very, I mean, I, I think my favorite game against him was a Blitz game where I had managed to win maybe three pawns throughout the course of the game and completely unaware that I was any in any danger in the end game, just got mated with my king on e4. Hmm. Um, and that's a very Tom Murphy experience, the self, self-described king of thieves. You don't have the game, do you? I don't. Uh, the only games okay. against him I remember are ones where I kind of whooped him. But I'm happy to send okay. those along. <laughs> it seems unfair. <laughs> I think so. Yeah, it's funny how I don't remember the ones that I lose. But <laughs> right, yeah. Um, all right. Well, anyway, we got we we went on some some my what I hope are uh, instructive tangents. But I was asking you about uh, openings and how when it became time to um, clean up your opening game, um, you you worked with your coach. So what did you do to, to tighten up your repertoire? Yeah. So I think what I had to do for myself was understand what it means to learn an opening. And I'm not sure I've figured it out and I'm not fully convinced anyone knows what it means except for like, I think like Magnus knows his openings and Fabi knows his openings. But beyond that, like at the club level, I think it means a lot of things to a lot of different people. And so trying to figure out what it meant to me, that was something that was practical and useful that I could actually learn from was like some, some of it was talking to my coach. Some was just like observing how she described things and trying to figure it out. And I think more or less what I figured out is that learning and opening has a lot more to do with understanding a few key thematic pawn breaks or sacrifices in some lines or like key squares for your pieces than it does with memorizing a lot of variations. Yeah. But also you have to memorize a lot of variations. (laughs) And when you memorize those variations, what you have to be on the lookout for not just is memory, not not just memorizing the moves or something, but memorizing which of the general sorts of breaks or principles or whatever do or don't apply in those cases. So like, I think recently I've been trying to learn the advanced variation, the short variation against the Carol Khan. And because every time I tried to memorize lines casually, like not using chessable or something, I would just get them all mixed up. So I finally put them on chessable. And when I was learning it, what I was realizing is, okay, it seems like there is a lot of very different plans white has. And which one is best for white has a lot to do with the specific setup black picks up. So I was going to say that opening in particular, I do not find to be intuitive. No. Yeah. There's, there's certain lines. Like, I think like I got like, like there's certain things, you know, like I don't think I've ever put my Rui Lopez repertoire on chessable because with, with a few exceptions, the lines sort of make sense, right? Like you sort, you start to get the feel to like how you maneuver the knight, where you push the pawns, where the breaks are. And it sort of has a sort of rhythm to it. Um, it's a very slow and tedious rhythm, but it's a rhythm. And then there's other things where I just tried to do it like that. And so I think when I, when I think of like what the real breakthrough was, well, part of it was just like learning the lines or having somebody who understood how to use chess boy, chess base, send me PGNs with lines. And part of it, I think was just the freedom of 
somebody else picking out lines for me who I paid to send me lines meant that I didn't have to worry about whether I was doing a bad job picking out lines. I didn't have to worry about whether they were good or bad lines. I didn't have to convince myself that I shouldn't spend time studying them because this person whose chess game I respect and who I'm paying money to in exchange for sending me these lines did it. So I better trust them and I better review them. Um, And that's, I think, something that for me, I'm the kind of person where like, so outsourcing that labor and paying for that labor was itself really important to start taking openings more seriously because every time I would casually look things up for myself, I would doubt whether I was even doing a good job picking out lines and then not really figure out how to work hard learning them. Um, okay. So that was so that was part of it. And then I think just like starting to figure out how to understand, oh, like going for this plan rather than that plan rather than that plan has a lot to do with the specifics of the other side's position. And I think the book that taught me that is funny is not an opening book, but it's um, it's uh, it was uh, chess structures with uh, your previous guest uh, Flores. Uh, yeah, Mauricio Flores. Flores. Ruiz. Yeah. yeah, Flores Ruiz. Um, yeah. So uh, also that was an amazing interview and one of my favorite episodes of your podcast. Everyone go back Thanks. and listen to it. And I think yeah, on that episode, guy. I think on that episode, you mentioned how like more of your guests have mentioned his book than any other book. Or yeah, it's it, up there. For it, sure. it at least feels definitely, that way. Definitely amongst like books published in the past, you know, seven years, it's got to be. So I'm realizing that mostly how I'm describing how I've learned openings is pretty much how he structures his chapters. Where so in this book, even though it's about pawn structures, he organizes the pawn structures by characteristic openings that lead to these pawn structures, and then characteristic plans for each side out of those structures. And then going through various games and explaining, notice how white went for this plan rather than that plan because such and such. Or like, notice how this is a bad time to go into this pawn structure because white doesn't want to trade pieces and blacks already traded two sets of miners. And so just that sort of explaining is like these sorts of otherwise kind of non-intuitive things of like, I went for this plan because the book said to go for this plan, but it didn't work and I don't know why made a lot of sense and like it teaches it taught me i think how to study how to look at the specifics of a position and then evaluate what sorts of decisions to go into that and like taught me a lot about positional play yeah it's it's an amazing book that that makes sense um so it might be given what you said about the way you approach or have approached openings um it might be hard to break down but um, I think one question that adult improvers always struggle with is just like how to allocate, like what percentage of time do you do you devote to which study activity, you know? Yeah. Um, like that's sort of the million dollar question. <laughs> um, so it sounds like you put a greater emphasis on openings than some of some of um, my other guests. What what percentage? And again, it might be hard for you to even break down since you were looking at structures more mm-hmm. than just straight up memorizing lines. But what, like, if you were to attempt to to put a percentage on it, how much time do you think you devoted to openings um, in this past year and a half? I what think, percentage? I think at least fifty percent of my time oh, wow. studying yeah, chess is definitely openings. definitely against the grain of definitely other definitely against the grain. But I want to be clear that in that time, I am including like. I'd include reading a chapter of chess structures as studying openings. Um, yeah. 
And so, yeah, like, what percentage of time do I spend memorizing lines? 5%? 3%? Yeah, that's really small. Maybe 10% in an ambitious month. But, like, what I like about the way I'm describing learning openings, or, like, well, I mean, I'm describing learning openings in this very kind of abstract theoretical way, which I think is something that I've learned to do in part because, like, going to school for philosophy, doing a graduate degree in philosophy, um, I'm literally spent the past 10 years of my life learning how to think about stuff. Um, and so applied to chess, that means like, you know, I think you hear this kind of philosophical sounding question, which is what does it mean to learn a chess opening, which is exactly the sort of question that I would nerd out on. Right. Like, right. But I think a result of that is I start, I start to think about what it really means because something like memorizing lines I don't understand doesn't seem to do it for me. Um, it's not enjoyable. If I mix up move orders, which happens a lot, it doesn't help me. If they go out of book, I don't know what to do. Once I get out of the moves I've memorized, I don't really know what the plans are. So clearly just memorizing moves isn't, and it's just not also not practical. I'm bad at memorizing things, and I don't want to spend the time it would take to memorize a complete repertoire really deep. So it's not practical, and it just doesn't seem fun, and it doesn't seem helpful so what does learning an opening mean and i think like being able to get to the core of like understanding the more abstract elements of what is involved in that question means that a lot of a lot of what i learn about middle game and even end game plans comes through thinking about openings and the strategies that come out of openings and Picking out, like, I think when I wanted to figure out how to play the black side of the Italian game better, I just downloaded a file of all of Ding Liren's games in the Italian and went through them looking at the choices he made in the opening and then looking at what middle and end game positions came out of that, looking at when he was playing h6 g5 versus when he wasn't, where he was putting his dark square bishop, what positions came out of that. So really, I think of that as studying the opening, but I'm going through his entire game and okay, yeah. I'm learning from the next world champion. Um, <laughs> wow, shots fired. <laughs> <laughs> Take that, Anish Giri. <laughs> Um, um, no, that's uh, that's really insightful. And uh, yeah, it echoes what a uh, recent guest, Camille Plicta, was saying. I mean, and many others before him, this is not a novel concept. Um, mm-hmm. But the idea of having model players, depending on what opening you play. But but yeah, I mean, so that's sort of definitely a more holistic view than just uh, memorizing lines. And I think the other nice thing that comes out of that is that not only is that, and this is, I think, the other genius of of the uh, Flores Rios's book of chess structures is these are points that you can apply to different openings too, right? Like if you start to come up with, if you start to appreciate the beauty of certain plans, you might have played either a totally different opening that develops a similar pawn structure, or a analogous pawn structure where the same plan applies, and you're like, oh wow. Um, I'm playing the, I don't know, I'm, I'm going to be bad at coming up with an example, but I'm playing one sort of opening, and this plan that I saw in this chapter on this totally different opening, or by this player in a totally different opening, totally works here. And in that sense, like that sort of middle game play is really inspired by studying openings in the way that it's not when you're just memorizing lines. But for those sorts of reasons, 
And also just like looking at the more general things of like how people make certain decisions in various openings can help when when I'm out of book, I still feel like I'm very inspired by openings I've studied. I think like one of my favorite wins is the one time at the Marshall when I beat Jay Bonin, who's an international oh, wow. master in a 25-5. Legend. I've, yeah. I've outplayed him for parts of other games and lost. And this was not a game where I outplayed him, but I won. Um, but he loves unorthodox openings. So this game starts with what he said is the Brazilian defense where he's black. Hmm. And so I play E4, E5, Knight F3, Queen E7. Unbelievable. So I mean, I, not, sh- not shocking for Jay Bonin. Not shocking yeah. for Jay Bonin. But yeah. instead of being terrified... I just decide that I'm going to play something kind of strange. And I think I play bishop c4, d3, but then knight d2. And then at some point, it's, or I guess that b- the dark bishop goes somewhere. But at some point, I've played a4, b4, queen a2, queen b1, queen a2. Hmm. And, but I was, but I did that because I was watching some, I think I was like reading about like, uh, wow. I'm blanking a Rubenstein game, I believe. Well, yeah, I was thinking yeah, of that, that. Exactly. Well, he was black in that game. He was black right? in that game, and it was an yeah. Italian game. But he staked out a bunch of space on the queen side, pushed those pawns, and developed his queen that way while keeping the center closed up. And I figured I don't really understand what Jay is doing with Queen E7. And Potentially, he doesn't either, and he just wants me to make a mistake. But it seems like playing d4 and opening the e-file only helps his queen get into the game. So I'm going to open up my queen and get my queen into the game while keeping the center closed. And I'm going to do that because I can think of this other game I've learned where that strategy worked. And it's a totally different opening, but I learned it from studying an opening. Um and I don't think what I did was brilliant or anything, but it meant that he also got into time trouble and eventually blundered a piece. Um, and that I got a position that was fun and original and comfortable to play instead of worrying that I was out of book. Yeah. Um, wow. I mean, it sounds like a good approach. So you, with your students being that they're, um, you know, reasonably lower rated than you, I mean, mm-hmm. you mentioned students in the 1300 to 1600 range. Um, so for them, uh, what, what, did, what, excuse me, um, uh, what do you advise they do? Like, how do you suggest they approach openings? Yeah. So I try and be, I try and really understand how much time my students want to put into chess. This maybe wasn't something I was thinking about as much when I started teaching, but then started to discover that like, you know, much lower rated people maybe aren't ready to put 10, 20, 30 hours a week into chess. Um, some people just don't have that time. Um, some people, yeah, you know, so just really trying to figure out what you want out of chess, what you want to put into chess and taking it from there. Um, so it varies a lot. You know, I have people who the only chess I think they're studying are our lessons. Um, and then, I have people who are willing to, you know, if I send them a file with 20 model games, they're going to go over them and have questions on it next week. And I I hope my students in the first camp hear that, learn that there's these students in the second camp and decide they want to be more like those. But ultimately, (laughs) but ultimately, I mean, I want to be really respectful of time, but I also don't want to feel, I don't want to feel like, 
I've led my students to believe that they're going to see huge strides in the opening just from hearing me talk about openings for an hour every week or every other week. Um, so, you know, if I have people who are like, I've never studied openings, I'm not a good memorizer, and I don't like the idea of spending time on that, then I'm much more inclined to be like, watch this 45-minute Simon Williams video on the London system. That's your white repertoire. Congratulations. Right. Yeah. Um, but then I'll have people who are like, even when they're like grade 1200, who are like, I'm going to send you my entire opening repertoire on the con Sicilian, and I want you to add any notes or holes you see in it. And then it's like, okay, this is a very different, this is like a very different approach. And that's when I'm more likely to like bust open the chest structures and kind of like go through it the more of the way like I approach it. That um, makes sense. So I'm for glad, me, I'm I think it's... Don't just, I'm glad you don't just take them up on that request. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> because some of it is just like, you can memorize it, but what, 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 but yeah, like I try to be like, you can memorize this, but what are you going to do if they pull you out of book? And a lot of times going through their games, we learn the answer is make a mistake. Yeah. Um, but I mean, yeah. or, uh, or make a mistake two moves after you get out of book, whatever right. it is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because you don't understand the position. So I, yeah. so I do try Which, and uh, I mean, sorry, I just, I, yeah. I'm not meaning to disrespect anyone listening who's lower rated. That's just. That's the mountain you have to climb, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I think, I think some, I mean, some of it is hard because like I grew up not really, I mean, I had on, on informal teachers and like a community of chess players growing up, but I didn't have a coach ever, like an individual coach who I took lessons with. Um, so some of it is like, how do uh, some of, so some of it is like, I try to really figure out what the student is putting into it and wants to get out of it and how they think about the game because not only do I think that's ultimately a good thing to do, but I don't, I'm not convinced that the way I was taught fits for everyone when they're rated 1200 because I didn't have a way I was taught when I was 1200. Right. Well, do you have a sort of overall philosophy? So, I mean, again, this is always going to be somewhat individual specific, but say someone like if you get your median median 1500 student or something mm -hmm. like how how would you advise them to to divide up their their study time how much do they need to play what's what are your general thoughts about yeah uh, best practices yeah so when uh, someone says they want to start working with me and they're around that level like 1500 or they don't want to start working with me but ask questions i think the main thing i do is I either go through some of their games to try and figure out if they're mostly losing on tactical mistakes mm -hmm. or if they're losing for other reasons. Or I would ask them the question, mostly when you lose, do you feel like you understand why you lost or that you don't? And that can be a misleading question because usually they'll point to the blunder and not the positional mistake three moves before the blunder. Um, right. But So I prefer going through it myself, but... If mostly it seems like what they're doing is botching tactics, then I really recommend that they put themselves through like a boot camp where we come up with like uh, a, a like a regiment for them getting studying more tactics, whether it means buying books or like getting on chess tempo or getting a chess.com membership and just really so, training the blunders out of them. Sorry, would you would you have any specific recommendations? Like, I mean, you mentioned Chess Tempo. Mm. Um, any specific book recommendations you would make in that uh, situation? I confess to not being... 
for that level, I feel like I'm for that level. I feel like if we're talking like really serious, like blunders, I'm really, I'm not convinced that there are books. I mean, that are that necessary. I mean, I feel like if they don't seem to know basic tactical themes, something like Susan Polgar's chess tactics for champions is amazing. Mm -hmm. But you know, like if it's really just like getting more comfortable with tactics, even though the, though they know the themes, I'm not really sure why they should buy like the Las Polgar book rather than like just go online. Um, and I'm happy to be corrected on that. But I think if we're talking at like the pretty, pretty straightforward level of tactics, you know, I think it's really more about like learning the themes or even just like something like going on Lee Chess and typing in a theme and finding a study someone's probably made for free that explains it can be really good. But for, um, for more advanced tactics, yeah. Um, uh, Romain Edouard, uh, the other guy, um, Jacob Agard. Sorry. Yeah. Sorry, Jacob Agard. You're not You're the first person to refer to, refer to him as the other. <laughs> <laughs> well, there, there's, there's two books on my forward chess app for tactics right. that I always pick yeah. at random and Edward shows up first. And then sometimes I click on that one and sometimes I click on the other one. And at this point I couldn't even tell you which examples which or which, right. layouts in which. So there's one guy, there's the French guy and the other guy. And yeah. I respect them both a lot more than that makes it sound. Um, but I mean, those are just beautiful because like they're coming. These are really ranging from like, surprising to actually very challenging positions that are coming out of actual grandmaster games and i think that's really useful also for a psychological standpoint because you start to get the feel for like what sorts of mistakes really fantastic players make and i like so one thing i like to do in those tactics is try and communicate to students who are at that level or like so people who are like making tactical mistakes that aren't like you just need to train more tactically, but like tactical mistakes that are like, I don't know, like there's like this really beautiful example where like there's this prophylactic pawn push that makes winning a piece. It's like this Kramnik Anod game where like there's this prophylactic pawn push that makes winning a piece the next turn pretty much inevitable. And it's like, how did a player who's 2800 miss this move that like forces the win of a piece? And the answer is there is a much more obvious move that looked like it won a piece but didn't work. And so Kramnik probably spent, or maybe it was a nod, crap, I don't remember. One of them probably spent so long making sure that the more obvious scary move didn't work that they just frankly forgot to look for alternatives because they had to spend so long double and triple checking the obvious move that they just forgot to pause and look for other moves. They... There was the scary move. They had to really make sure it didn't work. They were satisfied it didn't work, so they played, and they forgot to look at alternatives. And that's like a really good thing, I think, to teach, because this is a really brilliant player who made not a chess error as much as a thinking error. Because mm-hmm. once you like say, oh, well, it's not that move. What's the move that sets it up? They fi- Like 1500s find this move in 30 seconds, but it's being reminded to think about moves other than the obvious move that is like so that's so that's like a sort of teaching thing so i think those books are great for going back and working out how like these are still very hard tactics and fun surprising challenging tactics but how did how did players so much better than us miss them and what can we learn from that 
Um, yeah, that happened with with Magnus at Isle of Man. There was I, I'm, I can't remember the exact details, but there was a, a tactical shot that he missed, and he said he had it all calculated. He was ready to play it, and then he got back. It was a, it was a situation where there was an exchange, and he was just recapturing the piece. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, the the most obvious move was just to recapture the piece, but there was like a winning or shot that gave him a significant advantage. Mm. But he was coming back from the bathroom, and he just moved. <laughs> yeah. He just played the recapture like you know the world champion. Yeah. Um I'll f- I'll find the game details um for the for the show description. Yeah, that's um, that's such a great example. Yeah, because it's not like he was incapable of calculating the alternative. He just didn't calculate the yeah, alternative. Yeah, no, he had already done or, it. Or he, he or he forgot yeah. he calculated the alternative. Yeah, it was just the normal like person version of that is unconscious mind. Yeah. Yeah, like the normal at, person at version odds. of that is just forgetting to calculate it, but the Magnus yeah. version is yeah. <laughs> But but one other thing I wanted to, to circle back to just for a second, just yeah. so that we don't leave people hanging, is uh, in terms of about the uh, tactics for 1,500-ish players, one thing I would say is, obviously, I, I agree with you that online training can be can be as good. There, I mean, we've had, I've had, of course, many conversations about this general topic. And one thing is uh, some people have a problem with just clicking when they're doing it online, mm. whereas with whereas with a book, uh, it can be easier to, to have the sort of mindset where you're going to think through it and uh, really, um, really sink your teeth into a puzzle. And also there's the reward element of um, of, you know, having the feeling of finishing a book. Yeah. Um, <laughs> with tactics, they just never end. So, of course, you can get hung up on ratings milestones. But beyond that, like tactics ratings milestones, but beyond that, I mean, it's it's you may not get the same sense of reward. Um, and just to give a few book recommendations, I mean, none of these, uh, all of these have been recommended in the past, but cool. uh, at the sort of um, lower bounds, Jeff Coakley's Blue Book, which is ostensibly for kids, but definitely is useful up to the 1400 and probably beyond level is good and uh a little beyond that there's tactics time um and for by tim brennan um and and for everything in between uh there's obviously of course the step series which involves a lot of tactics and everything else Mm. um so there's definitely there there is material out there for anyone wondering but um just wanted to slide that in but oh um, another a book i would recommend that i like to work with a lot of the like 1400 to 1600 students on is and this is something that kind of goes into like the way that I feel like a major way I've improved in chess is thinking about chess differently. Um, so I'll I'll give the book recommendation first and say what I mean. Um, it's a small book just full of puzzle positions from Grandmaster Games by Angus Dunnington called "Can You Be a Positional Chess Genius?" Um, Sorry, go ahead. And it's a. Uh, and I really like assigning lessons from that book because they're puzzles that are about finding moves that are secure positional advantages rather than the material advantages we're used to from tactics books, but they're still concrete forcing lines. And to me, I think what's really important about that is for people like myself who kind of thought of positional as like very stodgy, abstract considerations that don't really involve a lot of calculating. What I learned was I, I thought I thought a positional play as a totally different beast than tactical play. And what I learned from this book was that a lot of the skills I've cultivated as a tactics player and as a tactics studier could apply to positional things if I just changed my goal from win a bishop or win a pawn to win an outpost or 
when an open file or when a better pawn structure. Um, and so it's still calculating concrete variations. It's just that they end up in an advantage. And after I started to realize that, it made a ton of sense because, you know, you start out learning chess and you're learning tactics that end up in checkmate. Then you start learning tactics that win a queen or a rook. And then you start learning tactics that win a pawn because your opponent's not blundering a queen or a rook. And then I thought at first, oh, and then your opponent stopped blundering. But now I realize, no, now your opponent is blundering an outpost or they're blundering an open file. And so like the next frontier is when they're blundering to concrete variations, more kinds of positional advantages. And so I really like assigning that book to people who've like studied tactics some or at the point where they understand tactics because it teaches them to train their tactics senses to get positional play rather than trying to teach a totally different thing called positional chess. Okay. You, JJ, it's always fun when someone comes up with a new recommendation. Uh, <laughs> I got at, one. At, yes. At this, at this stage of uh, the, the podcast arc and you, you got one. So congratulations. And uh, yeah, I, I am not even familiar with the book, so I'll definitely have to check it out. I'm sure there are plenty of books similar to it. Because it's not like there's a whole lot of text in the books. And there's like this sort of like solitaire point keeping system that I think going back to what you were saying about some people finding that kind of satisfying can, I think they would find this very satisfying because he'll tell you how many points to give yourself based on whether you right, found the yeah. first move or the plan. But I mean, I think what's, I think what's, that was, I, I, I like, I decided that I was going to play tournaments June or July when I was moving to New York at the end of August and I went home to North Carolina for a bit and decided to pick out a couple chess books that I had acquired but never read when I was in high school and I picked up that one because I knew that positional play was one of the things that always eluded me and now looking at that book as an adult and as an adult who spent a lot of time like thinking about concepts and how things are defined I was like oh positional play isn't just like these 40 move down the road abstract considerations positional play is what i would call tactics and so i kind of try and stress that i view these distinctions not so much as between the tactical and the positional but between like the static and the dynamic and mm -hmm. that what what is called positional play can still be just as dynamic as tactical play okay and just to nail down the timeline uh, this is august 2017 or uh 2018 2018 wow mm -hmm. wait so you i mean i did look at your rating history so i should remember this but so you so it's really like uh 16 months or something yeah so wow, so I, I played You're... i played one tournament in july when i was back in north carolina and went from 1798 to 1835 and then when i moved away from new york so from then from like August 2018 to December 2018, I went from 1835 to I think like 2020. And then by March of this year, 2019, I got up to 2106. And my goal for the year was to break 2100 and not to brag, but I've broken 2100 twice. And <laughs> now I'm 2099 and poised to break it for a third time. Yeah, it's... Uh... Such a good feeling you had to do it do it many times. I'm I'm just um, an overachiever, I guess. Right. Well, so I mean, I have a few a few threads I want to pursue. Totally. Um, number one, I should just throw in one more book recommendation before I forget. Um, similar uh, rating level, and it sounds I think it's kind of in between what you're describing the Dunnington book and mm -hmm. the tactics book, which is a. Uh, 
Practical Chess Exercises by Ray Cheng, which is one of these books where they don't really tell you what kind of puzzle it is. Ooh. So some of them, some of them are prophylactic, some of them are end game, some of them are straight tactics. Um, I'm not so sure if def- you could hear the keyboard clicking, but that was me putting that book in my browser to purchase after this interview. Okay, I mean it's you're you're probably a little beyond it personally, but definitely for your students, it's uh it's worthwhile. Um, I'm also so, a big believer in like mixing up studying things that challenge you with things that should be easy and getting to that point where they become automatic because yeah a great way to beat players that are lower rated than you is to amass a huge advantage on the clock. Yeah, um, that's true. So, you know, if I can take these things that I understand but get to the point that I understand them in 20 seconds instead of 5 minutes, then that's going to help me bully 1600s. Yeah. Yeah, that's important and yeah, it's like I like how you have the 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 psychological, you know, the the psychological profiling that's really um helpful for I mean, success. it's it's a lot easier than having to outplay everybody. <laughs> right. Um and the other follow up I wanted to ask you was so having when did you move from New York to Chicago? Mhm. Yeah, I moved at the end of 2018, started 2019, so like right over Christmas. Okay, so do you feel like that slowed you down chess-wise? Well, I mean, when I was in New York, I was living... Well, I I guess I had a roommate, but I was living by myself and knew that I wasn't going to get a lot of my dissertation work done because I was teaching this class and knew that I could play all the chess I wanted. When I moved to Chicago, I knew that I eventually had to get back to finishing this dissertation. I was moving in with my partner who had lived in Chicago where she's finishing a PhD and knew that I didn't really want to be playing tournaments every week and like having to like not just uh, be gone for like one day or a whole weekend every weekend, but like I would try to like get rest, not go out you know, things like that to really be in the best headspace for headspace for chess. And I didn't really feel like committing to not having a weekend every weekend. So I think more in in a good way, just like knowing part of the reason why I was able to go so hard in New York chess was because I knew that I was only there for a few months before I moved to Chicago and that I didn't want to keep this up when I was living with somebody I loved and not trying to be cosplaying as a professional chess player. Yeah. Keeps you out of trouble too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <The chess. laughs> in New York city. Um, yeah. Okay. So that, that makes sense. So it, I mean, it's life circumstances combined with, with less opportunity. I mean, but mm-hmm. I mean, still you're making incredible progress. So um, what's what's your next tournament? How often are you managing to play these days? Yeah, so I was back in California for for work for September, and I played one tournament at the Mechanics and then a weekend tournament at Bay Area Chess. And they both went really well, tied for second at the Mechanics and tied for first in the Open at the Bay Area Chess. Wow. Um, it was, which was great. Those were some of the first really top results I'd had in a while. Um I think let's see wow oh wow it's already november it's november yeah. oh no um there's writing i wanted to get it's done in september a, it's gonna be a new decade soon oh don't don't say that um <laughs> so uh maybe maybe there's like the chicago class towards the end of november that i'll play um 
some point in February is the uh, amateur team tournament, which I never played in an amateur team tournament growing up, but I played with some people. I was the board one for a team of folks that I play with at this bar, um, Lincoln Square Chess Club. Check them out on Facebook. Um, they just meet up at a bar on Thursdays. Lovely people. But um, so I just played with some bar friends for that. And it was just like a blast. And I found I really liked the uh, camaraderie of having a team. And I played on the uh, the uh, I'm blanking on the name, but I played on the commercial chess league in New York. I met Adia Anyango and I was there. We just like instantly met and clicked and she was like, I want you on one of my teams. So she manages the ladies nights team, but then she also has a chess connections team. So I played on that and found that like being invested in the people sitting next to you and like being able to like have that sort of thing was really fun. So I'm really looking forward to the team tournament. Um, yeah, team, team tournaments, add, add, they can be so much fun. Yeah. It's also one of, one of my students uh, is a, uh, He's a senior at West Point and the captain of the West Point chess team. And so they played the team amateur North tournament. And I think the army team got paired against the Navy team oh, in wow. round two. And so when someone realized this, I like put them on board one, like on the stage in front of everyone. And they're both in uniforms. Like he sent me a picture of him playing in uniform. So it's like stuff like that's really cool. Yeah, for sure. Um, Okay, so I feel like uh, J- uh, JJ, this has been—I mean, it's been a, been super insightful. I feel like we have t- two major topics before I let you go. If if, yes. you're do- if you're doing okay on time, yeah, yeah. Okay, number one is I still need to sort of nail down the generic time management and <laughs> study time management mm-hmm. advice you would give. So. Yeah. In bullet points, let's say you're devoting 10 hours a week and you're, yeah. again, rated 15, 1600. What's the sort of template you should veer from based on your individual circumstances? What do you think? So you're mm-hmm. saying you spend, well, okay. I mean, obviously you're a little higher rated. So you maybe, and I'll just let you answer. I'll, so I'll give you ahead. my timeline and the generic timeline for 1500. Okay, perfect. Um, my timeline, if I have 10 hours a week on studying chess, the first thing I would do is play five hours less a week of blitz and make that 15 hours a week um, of studying chess because yeah. we know I'm playing a lot of blitz. Right. So now I have 15 hours already just by calling <laughs> myself out. So first, uh-huh. that's the fir- that's my first magic trick. Um, then of those 15 hours, I'm probably spending five to let's say let's say I'm spending six of those studying openings. And we can subdivide that to one to two hours of that is study memorizing lines like on Chessable. Um, The other four to five hours is like going over stuff that my coach sent me or like finding some books that explain openings or combing through games, looking for opening ideas and doing that sort of more general theoretical work that I really hope can benefit the chess. And then even when I'm doing the chess structures, is this chess structures? So that would be like chess structures or like other books. Like, so like, you know, like my great predecessors are great for like explaining opening ideas um, but just really like going through something looking to like try and understand openings at a higher level. Um, so stuff that I would call studying openings that, but that is a lot more about like trying to understand thematics in chess and less about memorizing move orders. Okay. Um, so that's six. And then I'd say like 
three three on whatever endgame book I'm working on. And I've recently started like making flashcards with positions. Like I've been going through 100 endgames you must know and learning that a lot of them I didn't know. And I think an important point there, and I'm just stealing this from my friend William Aramal, who runs Dynamic Chess, is an excellent teacher, about a 2300 player. Um, In my fantasy basketball league. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He did say that. Uh, so I think William's point here is like, there's understanding an endgame, and then there's how quickly you understand it. Um, because it's one thing to be able to look at a position and within a couple of minutes calculate it out. And it's another thing to glance at a position and just know if it's a win-loss or draw. Um, or just know the plan. And yeah. that's important because now let's say that that position, instead of being on the board, is at the end of a four-move calculation, four-move variation you just calculated. Um, so now suddenly you can't just stare at it on the board and figure out if it's a win or not, right? Like, because, but if you can calculate four moves deep and see you get king and queen versus king, you know how to win it. But if you can calculate four moves deep and see that you've got king and knight versus king and rook's pawn on the sixth, but you know exactly what square the knight needs to be on to make it a draw, then you know whether you've drawn it or not without having to calculate. So like really trying to get to the point of like memorizing working on those end games like learning new concepts but also getting moving from i understand it to it's automatic and i think that's something that i hadn't really done until recently yeah that that's high on my list of if and when make a (laughs) comeback yeah and that one is on chessable and perfect for the chessable format that's true um so um, anyway go on that's three hours then three hours on like really hard tactics so you know that guy and the other guy edward and those books uh three hours a week guy and the danish scottish guy (laughs) exactly uh (laughs) and maybe you know maybe like three hour long sessions on that and three hours on what i would call easier tactics like something like chess.com or any of those books that you recommended or chess tempo um because i i am a big believer in you know I don't know, like I would find even when I was like over 2100, I was losing games on pretty easy tactics because I was dedicating so much of my time to either really complicated tactics or just more theoretical parts of the game and realizing I was still pretty mortal on the uh, easy stuff and kind of just accepting that like stuff that seems like it's pretty straightforward while I can always try and get it faster and get it more reliably right. So just like 2,000-ish tactics on chess.com, trying to spend actually a couple hours a week doing things like that. And I found that that just helps a lot for staying sharp. So really, and especially leading up to a tournament, I'd probably spend this, like uh, Jan Gustafsson said when he was on your show, that he was a big believer in like easy to medium tactics as a warm-up instead of just the hard stuff. Um, But yeah, so like six hours on opening where most of that is not memorizing, three hours on end games where some of that is memorizing uh three hours on hard tactics and three hours on not as hard but still like challenge you some tactics okay that's super helpful um one thing i should i just realized even when i was i was mostly in jest but i should clarify roman edward of course is french not italian um (laughs) (laughs) with, with that correction out of the way i just uh you know can't live with myself um without correcting that but um the other thing is we didn't mention game analysis. Uh, oh, crap. So you're going to have to come up with some more hours. Yeah. Well, 
I would probably count that as opening prep from a lot of the way I analyze games because I I really I wasn't thinking about it so you're right but um but I think that maybe I would probably on weeks when I have game analysis I would probably spend a little less time on just solid opening prep because a lot of the game analysis one of the thing one of the heavy things I'd be looking at would be how I played the opening and what sorts of problems or strengths in the game came out of the opening Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. And a lot <laughs> depends on how often you're actually getting to a tournament. Right. Uh, um, I mean, when you were in New York, it sounds like game analysis had to be like a major part of your study time. Yeah, I think there, I think when I was in New York, it was really just like lessons, game analysis, openings. And I was playing so much chess that I didn't even really need to study tactics because I was getting them every night. Yeah. And I think when you think about why kids improve so fast, I mean, obviously, you mentioned the neuroplasticity. Um, and of course, more free time, et cetera. But, mm-hmm. but I mean, the fact that they just play, I mean, yeah. they're, like they're playing two tournaments a month, like, you know, kind of, that's, I mean, that's probably like, you know, that's somewhere near the middle of the range of, of what super, like the kids who make huge leaps play. Right. Um, so that in itself, I agree that it's just to get that feedback and you just can't, I think it was uh, Christopher Chabri who was saying you, you can't mimic the conditions of playing in a tournament. I mean, try yeah. try though you might. Um, there's nothing like it. Yeah. I think one thing, the closest that uh, comes to that too, and this is something that I got from one of your other adult improvers, Jason Sagan. Sagan yeah, shout I met. out to him for putting us in touch. Yeah, thank you, Jason. I met him in Portland like in 2011 during the time when I was quote unquote on hiatus from chess, but like, hanging out in Portland for a few weeks and would go to downtown where there are chess tables. And he was one of the better players who was often there. And we met and sort of stayed in touch from that. But something I want to talk about my hiatus from chess too, I remembered, but, um, um, but something I got from Jason is just like the habit of playing training games with people, both who you're a bit better than and from people who are a bit better than you. Um, Because it doesn't mimic tournament chess exactly, but there's something about like knowing the person you're playing and knowing that you're going to post mortem afterwards that like makes me a bit more serious than when I'm just playing online. Yeah. Against strangers. Yeah. Like shout out to the Twitter chess league. I definitely sense that I haven't <laughs> gotten, I haven't dipped my toe in yet, but there's like the, the chess Twitter has, um, uh, I think it's say chess apologies if I'm wrong guys um, has started a league but um, and it's you know it's super successful a lot of people playing and they can share game snippets and stuff and th- I can see how that would definitely be motivating that's great yeah that's great and so like that can work and I know there's like l- leagues on Lee chess that some of my friends play but like for me you know like when I'm playing Jason you know he's somebody I respect a lot as a player he's a solid one to 200 points better than me so like I, I, I always want to impress him I always want to show myself that I I can give him a good game. I know I can learn a lot if I play well and don't just do something stupid or play too fast. And all of those things kind of lead to me getting a lot more out of those training matches than I do from playing people at random. So it's not quite mimicking the conditions, but I think there are, I think the only thing I would want to add to what Shabri said is that you you can give yourself, you can figure out what works for you for more and less serious things. Like for some people, it's like playing in person, even if it's not at the tournament, they care more. And for me, it's playing somebody I know, even if it's online. 
Yeah, that's a good point. And and also, of course, you can't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. You know, I mean, there's people who live very far from tournaments. I mean, it can people with families. It can be a major feat to get to one tournament a month. So right. Um, even if even if it's even if a training game online only achieves you know seventy seventy five percent of the effect of going to the tournament, it's it's still a pretty good use of one's chess improvement. It's time. a lot better than the one percent effect you get by playing a three zero game online. Yeah, exactly. Or, or like one of those you know four hour sessions that <laughs> starts starts innocently <laughs> and never ends. Oh yeah, that's what I meant. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's, I guess they're one and the same. Um, <laughs> all right, so. Um, and last but not least, any, any book recommendations that we haven't gotten to yet? I feel like we've had some good ones sprinkled throughout our conversation, but yeah, that was, that was the big one. Um, I think, I think, I think we got, I think we got to the big ones. Um, I mean, what you say about chess structures is so true. I mean, you could really just study that for like ever, you know, like, yeah, I mean, it's really about you don't need that many books i'm trying i'm trying to think about whether i read any chess books after i kind of gave myself a break from chess um and i think what i really liked as a sort of like easing back into it was uh the my great credit predecessors books which i'm not expecting to be a novel recommendation but there's something very infectious about kasparov's love for the game and the way that he's able to tie in very rigorous analysis with these stories and history that you can kind of trick yourself into thinking that you're just reading something as a casual observer or like a casual fan rather than quote unquote studying chess. That to somebody who was convinced they were burnt out on chess, even though they were always drawn to the chess section at bookstores and buying the chess books and, you know, like keeping them in the bathroom at their apartment. It was a way to kind of trick myself into staying fresh and excited, even when I thought that I didn't want to put the work into getting better at chess. First of all, I have to say that was a masterful segue. (laughs) Grandmasterly, perhaps even. But, But so... Yeah, I mean, they're great books. They're they're also on Chessable, and yeah, I, I've mentioned before; those are my my the books that get me are the ones that tie in the the history and and the chess games. Um, so was there was there something else you wanted to add about your t- your time off? Just that, like, yeah. um, how do how do you reflect on it? Yeah, so I think that this has been like a kind of like getting back into chess has been something that I've been really proud of because it's involved like a lot of growth and vulnerability and like self-reflection which aren't adjectives that one would typically use to describe me or any other person born in the astrological zodiac sign of taurus (laughs) we're known for our stubbornness and hatred of change um wouldn't have pegged you for an astrologist but (laughs) yeah philosophy astrology it all started out as the same ben okay (laughs) um it's all math (laughs) read the ancient greeks um but uh it's fun to think about whether 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 it's right i don't know but i mean the same is true of opening theory so yeah um but uh so i feel like something that i find kind of perplexing about me is like in general i don't i i'm was born male i identify as a man i use he him pronouns i guess i'll also accept they them pronouns but it's been a long time since I've identified very 
firmly with my masculinity or felt very masculine or really even comfortable around groups of men. Um, a lot of my close friends are women or non-binary folks. A lot of the people that I try and read and stay in touch with online are women or at the very least very plugged into like spaces that are like very reflective on gender. But then my interests are philosophy, which is one of the most male-dominated disciplines. I think more grad students in philosophy are men than any other discipline except for engineering. So I think we even have physics beat. And like, so I think people often think of the male dominated fields of the hard sciences, but um, philosophy's up there. Um, I like a lot of really heavy, harsh kind of challenging music like punk and metal and like more extreme, like forms of like metal or noise, experimental stuff. It's not all I listen to, but that's another very male dominated space that I really enjoy the output of. I really like, watching sports and like following sports online and like sports Twitter, um, another male dominated space and then chess. So a lot of the, my main social interests involve spaces that I mostly just don't feel comfortable in. Um, and it's not meant to be like an indictment on individuals, like as much as it is like, there's just like a sort of culture and like how like certain like norms of masculinity can dictate a sort of like, aggressiveness or comparison or like we're comparing each other or just like a lack of emotional vulnerability that like I've just like find kind of off-putting even if I find a lot of the individuals to be perfectly lovely or friend or even or friends and so my kind of re- as I was starting to realize this like going into college and then like firmly in college and afterwards my initial reaction was well I should just like get out of these spaces um, and realizing retrospectively, that's kind of what I did with chess. Like I saw a bunch of grown ass men throwing temper tantrums when they lost, or like a couple of them would be mean to kids who they were playing. A lot of them would be rude. A lot of them would be kind of socially awkward or just like very competitive in ways that I just found very off putting. And so my reaction to that was, well, I don't feel comfortable in this space. I think I'm afraid of becoming this person. And also, by the way, I don't know why I'm not improving anymore. And this is a really lovely excuse to quit chess when I'm not improving. But also some of it was like being kind of disgusted by some of the culture I was seeing. Um, And so my reaction was to quit. And then as I started to have that reaction with some of the music spaces I was in, and then also with like some like sports Twitter, and then realizing, oh, now I'm just like running out of interest. Um, and really it was, it was really just like in lots of conversations I have with my, um, current partner about this and just like about like my personality in general of just realizing how my reaction to seeing something that I didn't like in myself, like being a part of a part, like being like a part of like a culture that was kind of like had these like sorts of like masculine features that I just wasn't too fond of was to just like drop out of it or like I saw some of my more like assertive side as like being a bit like more forcibly masculine than I felt comfortable with and so I would just like stop asserting myself and realizing oh that's not really the best reaction or really the only reaction you can have to this is like how do you kind of reclaim the good parts of this without just like going into this the bad parts of it too 
And so realizing, oh, how do I get this relationship to chess that involves a sense of community, that involves a sort of like being reflective of the psychological points and being self-aware, but also like being nice and supportive of each other instead of just like being competitive or throwing temper tantrums or being mean to kids. How do I be that for myself and how do I cultivate that with others? I want to come back to chess and like create that sort of space and find where that sort of space exists rather than just say, oh, I'm seeing things I don't like, so I'm going to dip out. Mm -hmm. And I think it took about like 10 years of reflection and growth to realize that. And I think it's still like a process. But since I've come back to chess with that mindset, I've like made some wonderful friends, both like online and in person. People have like reached out to talk about these things, um, met, met folks who I get along great with, who have been feeling similarly, got in touch with some older friends from North Carolina, and like, like the clubs I go to are often like, you know, there's like a lot of like trash talk, et cetera, at some of like the more blitz places, but it's like sell this like very lovely spirit based on camaraderie that feels much more inclusive and just like vulnerable than what I had seen growing up, which I think is probably also an unfair characterization of some of the stuff I saw growing up. There's lots of great chess in North Carolina and great people in chess in North Carolina. But I think I was just drawn and so off put by the negatives that I was afraid of becoming that I didn't focus on the positive and didn't really see how I could contribute to that. And so seeing that as just something, I know that's rambling and I'm happy to like try and explain any of that better if you'd like. But, um, like, I think that's sort of like how I've seen the hiatus to chess as a lot more than just like, I didn't have time and I got bored with it. Yeah. I mean, there's, yeah. I mean, there's definitely obviously been that strain of chess and uh, I don't think it's entirely gone away, but I do. And think, I'm sure everywhere has that strain too. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, any subculture will, but, but yeah, I mean, chess is so competitive and people get their egos wrapped up in it so much. I mean, I think more so than than some activities, although maybe sports isn't is sports is right there with it. Sports fandom at least. Um but I, I definitely hear where you're coming from. Um I mean one other thing is I I mean I'm sure that the your reasons for quitting like you the cognitive like the thoughts that you had for the reasons are what they are, but when you go to college is also just a very common time to to quit playing chess. Yeah, um, and I figured that was probably one reason why like I, I kind of like forced this back into the conversation because I felt like I had more about more thoughts on why I quit than just that. But like when you right. see the timeline is he quit when he started college, I understand why you, there's like not really a need to even ask that question. Um, and I think some of it was like, it took a couple years to discover that like the kind of unique and quirky interest that everyone has is actually what makes them cool. Because going into college, I thought, well, there is the time thing, obviously, but look, I was a philosophy major. I had time. Um, but it was it was the uh, and it's a time that I should have been reading and working harder, but I had time. Um, it was the it was the like, here's my chance where people don't know me and there's like lots of cool people. And I'm at the school where like, at least I found people who value people who are intelligent and like read books and stuff. And so like, I can't let them know that I have such nerdy hobbies. Um, and it's not really until a few years later. And I think that like today's youth are much better about this of realizing that like yeah. the, 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 the weird stuff you do is like way cooler than just like the cool signifiers you can latch onto and like the music you can name drop. Um, 
So I really admire the youth on that. But it definitely took me a few years to realize that like, that's the stuff that's really interesting. And so like coming back into chess, like my friends who have played and quit or played and stall played have been super supportive, but also like friends of mine and friends of my partner who like didn't know there was a world of competitive chess before me have also been like really supportive and some of them really interested just in like, just in seeing, oh, here's this weird thing that I didn't know about that you're invested in. And now I get a window into that. That's cool. That's such a great perk of having friends is you get these glimpses into these worlds. And so just like cultivating those sorts of relationships is just a cool thing that I never knew was possible when I was 18 and self-conscious of being a dork. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, that's, that's good advice. And hopefully um, some of our our younger listeners will uh maybe you can encourage a few people to to stick with it or at least to to possibly consider revisiting it in the future I mean, or at least was... own it at least own it you know if you don't have yeah. time you don't have time but like to feel shame of it is just like wrong if people are making you feel shamed for like being passionate about something it's kind of sad that they're not passionate enough about anything to understand passion very well said Okay, JJ, I believe that we have covered, I mean, of course, we haven't covered everything, but I think that, that we should call it a night here. Absolutely. Uh, Thanks so much again for having me on. And oh, my pleasure. Great it's been great. I think people w will benefit immensely from this. So, um, so what's your contact info, JJ? How should people keep up with uh, your chess or, or yeah. to you? Yeah, great question. Um, Feel free to add me on Facebook. I feel like I post some stuff on Facebook. Um, JJ, two J's, Lang, L-A-N-G. I think I'm in the Stanford University network, other networks. But I think at this point, if you're friends with any chess players on Facebook, you should find me. Um, also, feel free to shoot me an email, either if you're just interested in talking about something or if you would be interested in talking about lessons or recommendations or game analysis or openings or just anything maybe you live in the area or whatever uh jonathan j-o-n-a-t-h-a-n dot jerome j-e-r-o-m-e dot lang l-a-n-g at gmail.com um i play online my <laughs> my username on chess.com and lee chess is the word kale with an underscore after each letter so k underscore a underscore l underscore e um, I think it was because my Twitter name was 666KL666. I'm not really sure why, but it was just kind of a funny sort of pseudo-Satanist thing. I'm not yeah. a Satanist. Uh, I think the original joke had something to do with a pun off of Hail Satan that was Kale Satan. Okay. But at this point, yeah, so that's that's the username. But um, Facebook and email are probably best. Uh, I do have a website that's pretty sparse right now. And let's see if I can find what it is. But I think it does have my contact info on it. So if you just type in the, the bit.ly bit bit.ly slash JJ Lang, you'll find my contact info. Okay. Yeah. And I'll link to it as well. So yeah, just uh, click on the link and yeah, give JJ a shout. And yeah, I'm, I mean, it's, it's truly impressive. I mean, obviously we, we've had, we've had some, some impressive adult improvers, but from, from your starting point to where you've reached in the amount of time, I, th I would, given your age, given that you're not a kid, I would pretty much put it up against anyone. So, well, so, I appreciate that, and I should say I should I should I should use that praise to go on my soapbox one more time, sure. <laughs> very quickly, which is to say, I think it would be awesome if 
U.S. chests could get to the point where they could find ways to give short-term fellowships to adults at the club level to have the opportunity to do what I did for a few months. And I don't know how that would work, but maybe, you know, like there was a, like there is a component to why I moved to New York that involved being paid to teach philosophy, which is my discipline. So probably U.S. chess shouldn't be paying people to teach philosophy. That seems right bad, but I don't know. There's like lots of need for chess instructors in New York from my understanding. And so like maybe if U.S. chess could get in on something where it was like, look, you know, there's like a semester long sort of fellowship for, adults because a lot of like chess teaching these programs are looking for people that are just like 1200 or 1600 strength they're not looking for ims and so for people who were a little bit flexible on time to be able to like have enough money to be set up with housing have like a pretty lax part-time job but then also just have a few months to really get to focus on their chess i think you would see more people shoot up from like 1600 to 1900 or 1800 to 2100. Maybe not all of them would go to 300 points. I do think that I had to work hard. And I do think that like, I probably had like a ceiling that I had worked towards that I just like hadn't worked around the rough edges. And there's some 1800s who've probably at their ceiling. So I'm not saying it would happen with everyone. But I would love to see some sort of system that could kind of invest in improvement at the club level, especially for women and like, other underrepresented groups in chess, a lot of whom just like, I don't, like I know, like through Adia, like we've never had an African-American woman make master. And I would love to see some sort of fellowship component, get some of those folks out to New York or have to work a little bit less to get there. And I think you'd see like how much, how much of like the jump I was able to make really came from that kind of rare combination of circumstances that led to it. And so I would love, I would love to see that become a kind of focus in the future. That's an awesome idea. That would be amazing. I mean, chess is growing, so you never know. Maybe, yeah, maybe. because, you know, I mean, like, and you can sort of pitch it as a practical thing, I guess. Like, I don't think if I hadn't made that leap, a big reason why I wanted to start teaching was because I had improved so much as an adult that I thought I could communicate these sorts of ideas and understandings that you just don't get when you learn all this stuff when you're seven years old or 12 years old. Um, and so I could see that some folks who, like, aren't teachers going through like a few months of being able to focus on chess and being funded to focus on chess, go back and be able to integrate it into their career going forward in ways that they wouldn't otherwise. So I do see it as not just like a hobby thing, but a real like uh, career enrichment thing. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. That's uh, a great idea. Um, maybe maybe uh, someone listening has... has has a way to flesh it out further or support it. It would that would be that would be awesome. I mean, I think I think it would be really cool to just start thinking about what sorts of financial resources we can give to club players, especially club players from underrepresented groups, but really just to anybody because, you know, out of my passion and circumstances, I was able to make it happen for myself. And like you said, the results are astonishing, but also it's I think that if we had a system where more people could do this, I think we would get more used to those results. Yeah. I mean, even something like, I mean, this is tangentially related, but just finding it, you know, like there should be a top 100 list for like adult improvers, you know, like that would be cool. Like, um, I mean, not to make things too competitive, but people need to be motivated. So, um, yeah, um, yeah, I, I agree. There's definitely more that could be done. That would be cool. That would be cool. And seeing the ways that it really does like enrich lives and like careers, et cetera, is not just like a hobbying thing, I think shows that there is like good practical motivation for it and not just pride. Yeah. 
Okay, well, that is a good note to end on, JJ. This has been Absolutely. A, a lot of fun, and keep up the the incredible work. And uh, yeah, we didn't even get to talk about your your academic career, but uh, but good luck with that as well. <laughs> uh, as long as I get to master eventually, I'm happy. Yeah, I, I like your chances. <laughs> All right, Ben. Thanks so much for having me on, and please, everyone listening, feel free to reach out. I'd love to hear from you. Okay, sounds good. Have a good night, JJ. Good night. Special thanks, as always, to my producer, Matthew Passy. I'd also like to thank everyone who helps spread the word about Perpetual Chess. The ways to do so include writing a positive review on Apple Podcasts or another podcast platform, telling a friend, spreading the word on social media. All of that stuff helps. But most of all, I want to thank the people who support the show financially. Without you guys, Perpetual Chess would not be possible. So I would like to give thanks to the following people and entities, my PayPal and Patreon Perpetual Chess Partners. Here we go. They are extra special thanks to Chessable.com and Quality Chess Books and the Capital City Chess Club, Chess Twitch channel, Andrew Bach, Austin Clough, Benjamin Porto, Kathy Cow, Chad Oliver, Dan O'Hanlon, Danny Davidson, David Schreiber, I am Dimitri Schneider, Faraz Sawaf, Gary Foreman, Greg Natel, Greg Shahadi, Guvin Manet, Jens Green, John Jernigan, John Cromarty, Kelly Palmer, Lone Pine Chess, Lorraine Duray, the law offices of Stuart Katz, Michael Can, my main man, Moonmaster 9000, Seattle Chess Club, Thomas Stonix, Thomas Tachenko, Todd Bryan, Todd Kennedy, and I'd also like to thank Aaron Waffler, Ace Vallega, Adam Ralph of ChessEngland.com, Adrian Gutierrez, Alex Pejas, FM Andre Tarakov, Andrew Perry, Bill Moran, Brad and Andy Rosen, Brett Howard Lynn, Brian Mullis, Chad Hilton, Chris Balcom, Chris Flanagan, Chris Wainscott, Christopher Baumgartner, Christopher Shabri, Christopher Wood, I am Christoph Zalicki, aka Chess Explained, Coach Jay's Chess Academy, Courtney Fry, David Kofer, Daniel Gell, Daniel Ginsberg, Daniel Lucas of U.S. Chess, Daniel Naylor, Dave Saylor, David Cramley, CEO of Chessable.com, Daylin Shelton, Dwayne Edmonds, Ethan Smith, Donnie Ariel, who may be an IM elect or maybe just has the titles, and I'm not sure if that makes him an IM elect, but thank you, Donnie, anyway. Fox Valley Chess Club, Frank Tortoris, Gary Andrews, Gary Lewis, Geert Vanderveld, Gerard Barta, Giovanni Russo, Han Shu, Harish Srinivasan, James Banastia, Jason Onfang, Jason Woolham, Jeff Anderson, Jeffrey Martello, JJ Stranad, John Fernandez, John Fontaine, John Hartman, John Zlosnick, Justin Gardner, Jen Shahadi, Joel Rocky, John Thompson, GM Josh Friedel, I am Kare Christensen, WGM Katarina Nemsova, Kelly Palmer, I am Kostya Kovutsky, Krishna Gopala Krishnan, Larry Wrightforth, Laura Belyavsky, Lucio Casada Silva, Martin Knudsen, Matthew Passi, Matthew Tedesco of SeattleChessMeetup.org, the Mechanics Institute Chess Club of San Francisco, Michael Allard, Miguel Araspide, Mr. Mike Shahadi, Nate Salon, Neil Bruce, Olaf Mueller Michaels, GM Pascal Charbonneau, Passi Passan, and Paul Bain, Paul Clarkson, Paul Swanee, Paulo Santana, Peter Lux, Peter Merrifield, Randy Temple, Ricky Grahava, Roy Yearwood, Ryan Berg, Scott Doherty, Scott McKinnon, WGM Tatyav Abrahamian, Tim Brennan of TacticsTime.com, Tim Seymour, Timothy Ha, Tomas Komanich, Tony Rotella, 
Tyron Price, Victor Vrancouz, William H. Brock, William Peterson, FM Zhao Chang, and Zhivko Stoyanov. Thanks a lot, everyone. I will catch you all next week. Podcast Network. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions. Supply.